so it's just me discovering like, oh, there's a context for this. What is the context? And and what maybe is not rooted in the gospel? And what can we learn from that? I mean, that that's just what my attempt is here is to just take the things that I sort of naively accepted as perfect and completely representative of, of Christianity and evangelicalism and say, oh, wait, there was this. And I'm sure people will do that for me someday. <laughs> It's watering time, everybody! It's time for Apollos Watered! A podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our... Deep Conversations. The imagination is far more than hobbits and unicorns, as Karen Swallow Pryor has told us. Her book, The Evangelical Imagination, is her journey of looking at the ways that our collective evangelical imagination has, in fact, shaped us, whether that's for good or for ill. There are some things that we assume are biblical as we learned, but they actually may be the way that our culture understands the Bible because of priorities and situations that were faced decades, even centuries ago. In our last episode, we laid the groundwork for the book, learned what the imagination actually is, and why this is such an important topic today. We talked a bit about the ideas behind her chapters on conversion and testimony and improvement. Today, we delve further into topics like domesticity and deifying the family, the subtle and seductive whisper of empire, and even reformation and rapture. And it all starts with sentimentality. More about that in a moment. What I love about the conversations that we have here at Apollos Watered is that it gets us back to the heart of God so that we might see him better. In our culture where we live on the surface, numbing our minds with Netflix and haagen we need to get back to God's heart by removing the layers of culture that have built up over the years that have actually dimmed our view of God. Years ago, when I started in ministry, I lived in a bungalow in Chicago. When we moved in, it had this old brown carpet in it that at one time, I'm sure, had been beautiful, but now was pretty matted and gross. I remember pulling up a corner of the carpet and found beautiful oak floors underneath it. So we ripped the carpet out, stripped and sanded the floors, and they were beautiful. At Apollos Water, that's what we are doing. Stripping back the layers of Christendom that keep us from seeing true biblical Christianity so that we can truly see the God who loves us. This is our purpose, our heartbeat, and our passion. Because we're never going to move truly forward until we rediscover who God really is. And by partnering with us, you become part of this important work. Simply click the link in your show notes and select the amount that works best for you. And know that this work is one that is impacting people for eternity. Now, let's get back to my conversation with Karen Swallow Pryor. Happy listening. Let's get into sentimentality. I saw the chapter title and I went, where are we going, Karen? What, 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 I, I don't know where we're going. And you have, subtitle, 
Uncle Tom, Sweet Jesus, and my favorite, Public Urination. All right, Karen, that's the literature professor being a little bit provocative there. Let's bring that out. Explain to us this, this chapter. Well, the center of this chapter is really just, you know, it's a, it's a common complaint. It's become it's kind of its own trope now. And that's just sort of like how Christian and especially evangelical art in the modern age can be so bad, right? And lots of people com complain about that. I mean, that wasn't always so in, in previous eras of many of the great musicians and painters and artists and sculptures and writers were Christians. But, you know, in modern world, they tend to be, especially in, within evangelicalism, it, they tend to be not so great. And so I just kind of say that one of the things that really it, it makes evangelical and Christian art today not good is its sentimentalism, um, its sentimentality, which is just basically substituting like cheap emotion for authentic you know sacrifice and and the journey and and the redemptive redemption um we just like to skip to the to the cheap emotional experience the subtitle comes from the fact that i i treat uh, i i consider uncle tom's cabin uh you know a, a, a beloved american novel as an example of this because it was something that did really change the course of, of history but it's not really a very good novel and it could have, you know, it, it, there was a sentimentality to it that moved, that, eased, that, that, that moved many of its um, white readers, but also diminished the humanity of African-Americans and slaves in particular and by stereotyping them. And so it, it did do something good, but it also causes harm along the way because it just, it, it's because of its emphasis on, emotional response and that's what a lot of bad christian art tends to do and so then i move to and i don't want you know i don't want to give it all away but the I, well yeah I, I guess i do i do for the sake of your loyal listeners who stayed with this conversation this long i, I will you know the public urination probably needs uh, an explanation <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't me it wasn't no. me <laughs> <laughs> you, well, you go after, and I was like, "Oh no, he's the patron saint of Christian art, Thomas yeah. Kincaid." Oh yeah. no, not it's man. Oh so, no, the painter of light, uh, who is so popular. You know his postcards and greeting cards and ten million copies he sold. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't know. I didn't know until I really dug into the research that, like his. His production was a literal factory, like employing, like it was a mass produced and people love to look at his, his paintings and see the light and the cottage cheer, the sentimental, whatever. And, you know, that's bad enough, but it's just very ironic or perhaps not ironic um, that, you know, his, his, his life ended you know, t too quickly and it kind of deteriorated and devolved it to the point where he was involved in, a, you know, some scandalous accusations and even like caught urinating in public in a drunken stupor a couple of times. And, you know, and, and I, I don't mean to pick on the man, but it, it, it there, for me, there's something emblematic about his life and his work. And that is is it's that shiny happy people syndrome that I think we like to have 
and find too easily in our in our churches and in, in our faith life where on the surface everything is cozy and cheery and filled with light like his paintings but you know it, you can't you can't really that that doesn't sustain itself if you try to sustain that level of shiny cheery you know happiness um that's not rooted in the real and doesn't make room for lament and for suffering and for the hard things then it will come out sort of on the, on the un, dirty underside uh, in the form of some like public urination, you know, in a drunken stupor. I mean, again, I'm, I, I want to look at that metaphorically. To be whole, to have integrity means to, yes, to, to seek happiness, to seek joy, but not at the expense of denying the rest of our humanity, which is, is not always cheery and is not always absent of, of suffering and pain. And so to, rec- to encompass all of it, not only in our, in our lives, but in our faith and our understanding of our faith as well. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. You brought out Warner uh, Solomon's Christ, the Christ. Now, Full disclosure, I had a woman in my church in Chicago whose husband was his dentist. <laughs> there's a connection. But I would always laugh at the painting because I'm like, there's golden, you know, there's golden tan Jesus, spray tan Jesus that's there. And what we're talking about for those, if you just go online and Google Warren, Warner Solomon, it's undoubtedly a picture that you've seen. This is the Jesus, his high school graduation portrait, as you, you kind of, you, you mentioned in there, but it conveys imagery and ideas. It actually conceptualizes what we believe to be the ideal of Jesus at that time of what we wanted him to be. And this is where we get these very incorrect notions. Sometimes, as you said, precognitively or just, you know, we don't realize it, we imbibe it. And I remember at my church in New England, we had that painting right in the middle of one of our meeting rooms and just hung there. And it bothered me because I realized that it was conveying something about who Jesus was that wasn't accurate. So we had a prayer meeting of uh, many of our folks were retired. So we'd have prayer meeting at 1.30 on a Wednesday. And I made it my effort. I would go hide that painting every time I had the meeting. And this one man would scour the church until he found it. And he would say, who keeps doing that? It's driving me crazy. And I did it to kind of mess with him. But I was trying to prove a point too. It's just that we take these ideas in and conceptualize this is who Jesus really is. And we would say, of course, no, it's no. But when we really think about what the Bible describes, and you mentioned this in Isaiah, is that there was no majesty. He didn't look great. He wasn't the Saul that was a head and shoulders taller than everybody. Sometimes I I think of him as this, you know, kind of a frumpy, middle-aged, balding, Middle Eastern man. 
kind of like, I mean, I hate to say the term, but like a George Costanza. I mean, that's people are like, well, that's blasphemy. But I mean, kind of you're getting the idea is that he looked like a common man that nothing was attracted to them. But why did you feel the need to bring that out as this piece of art that have many have held dear? And I know when I was at vacation Bible school as a kid, I got the, I got the little bookmark with Jesus knocking at the door. So serenely. I, I, and I was like, I can smell the Kool-Aid now in the air. When I was a kid at VBS and wanting to go play Red Rover right after we were done. But why did you bring that out? Yeah. I mean, there, I mean, there were so many things that I could have written about and, and, and for me, you know, I, I wanted, I mean, I, I said to some people recently uh, when I was uh, talking to a group of, of um, fellows who are being discipled, I, I said, when I write a book, I'm writing a book because I want to learn what I'm writing about. I want to learn about the thing I'm writing about and researching. And so a lot of what's in this book is, uh, is me kind of uncovering the things that I know have shaped me in my experience. And, 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 you know, and I, I, I try to universalize it and I, I do a lot of research and show it's not just me, but I mean, that was a painting. His artwork was very informative. It was very ever present in my, my church life, my VBS mm-hmm. life, my, you know, it, it was around and, and it was something that I just, I never really did examine. Um, how an image like that, and, and of course, I I love art, and all you know, and I love I love art. I I have no opposition to portraying Jesus or, or making movies about him. I mean, I'd like them to be good. That's another story. But I do think we are allowed and encouraged to use our imaginations to better understand Jesus and the life that's lives that are portrayed in the Bible and those things. But at the same time, we have to understand. And be very explicit about their limitations, and 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 so it's not just that the picture is inaccurate, but it contradicts scripture. And yet, even if if we understand it as being an imaginative work, that's that wouldn't be so bad. But I think for many of us, we just kind of assume, oh, this must be what Jesus looked like. And so, what does it what does it do when we say that when we are willing to present Jesus inaccurately as you know? A, a, a white blow, you know, magazine cover boy like that, that there's so many wrong values in choosing to misrepresent him that way. And it ties into evangelicalism's long history of, you know, white supremacy um, that is, you know, that it's not universal. I mean, there were evangelicals who, who worked to abolish the slave trade. Yet at the same time, we can look at the the difference between the evangelical founder, John Wesley, and George Whitfield, who were contemporaries doing much of the same work. And, and one of them, Wesley, opposed slavery, and the other one, Whitfield, owned slaves. That's a tension that existed in the early 18th century, and it still exists today. But we have many people who just don't want to reckon with this tension that has always existed and still exists. And a painting like that is just kind of one entryway into us saying, huh, how did how did this come about? And why did it come about? And also what did it do to us? How did it form and maybe even deform our imagination about not just about Jesus, but about the Christian faith? Sometimes I don't understand why how would I do? Yeah, it's hard to understand 
when I think like I do. Maybe I just don't get it. So let me ask you this question. I mean, you also get into materiality and looking at even the church architecture and structure and how buildings have been created and worship spaces from the cathedrals of Europe into the kind of the, the, the almost like Quaker-esque boxes of New England, I, where I passed it, it was very much that way. And now we're into the, for lack of a better term, Walmart ubiquitous taupe space where it's all neutral and mauve and that kind of thing. And we have this kind of neutered, comfortable worship and all of these things are you're basically showing is that they've shaped us but we always know that culture responds the pendulum goes one way in one generation and then it goes the other way so from the cathedrals we go to the boxes with nothing on the wall i mean we do that's part of who we are in human nature but how do we then keep this idea of not overreacting but keeping it in its proper perspective because we are by nature going to overreach overcorrect how do we keep it in its tension and proper place as we look at art and architecture and even music and now in film? Like we, we, I know you mentioned, and I, and I'm trying not to have us be highbrow, you know, for that. Cause we do, we do mention kitchen, things like that, but there is this idea as I'm looking at this and I go, okay, the chosen, for example, that's out there, you see, and we've had Dallas on the show where people, I've had people love that. And I'm sure there are others that people don't. I mean, there obviously are because he's putting them out there for people. But it is an, an look or a peek into the humanity of what we are now, as opposed to something from the 1970s with the Jesus film, where there was a greater emphasis on the deity and more of a denial on the humanity. And now there's more of an emphasis on the humanity at the exclusion of the deity. Because as we become more in tune with technology, as we have the... Uh, at least the the vestiges or idea or illusion, let's say, of omni omniscience, of omnipresence. We can know everything and know everywhere and go anywhere. We're in some place like almost deified idea, if you will. Mm -hmm. But we've lost this idea of humanity and we're trying to get that back. Do you see that the art is a representative of the time that helps us to see it? But yet, how do we see our own cultural moment and not go overboard? Does that make sense? Yeah, Is there no, a question? There's a question in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, somewhere. Let me find somewhere it. in there. Find it yeah. for me. I mean, this is the eternal sort of human struggle, right? And I think, I mean, it's it's that old uh, cliche about you know half the bat. What is it like? Half the the battle is knowing. Knowing is half the battle. That's GI Joe. <laughs> GI Joe, Karen. Now we've really devolved. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, there, there's nowhere to go from here, but uphill i guess um no but it, it really is like just again and that's the whole project of this book is again i'm saying there are unexamined assumptions for all of us so let's examine them like that mm. really that is you know it's not the whole battle but i think it's actually you know maybe 75 percent of it to just say huh you know, here's something that we haven't looked at critically or haven't been aware of. And so, yeah, I love how you described sort of the, the pendulum swing between the, the Jesus of the 70s to the Jesus now. And so always just simply understanding that our human tendency is to, to swing from one extreme to the other, to know that virtue is always like the golden mean, the moderation between the extremes of excess and deficiency, and to realize we're also culturally situated. And so sometimes... Sometimes what we're doing in a, any cultural moment 
is a counter swing against a previous extreme. It almost always is. And so to just ask the question, okay, so how do we not go too far? Most of us just aren't even thinking about those things. And so if we can at least know and, and think about them and be aware, I really do think that's more than half the battle. Yeah. I, I, and that's where I, I love what you're doing. Because what I see this as your work here, in some ways it is, and I see this as part of our responsibility as image bearers that are, I mean, these Christ followers now, and just like Israel in the, in the Old Testament, you see the nation of Israel, part of it was they were to be a kingdom of priests and represent God to the world by challenging and bringing down and confronting the cultural idolatries of their day. And I think that same responsibility is now. We have that responsibility and you're, you're calling out the quote, quote unquote, Christian idolatries, the accoutrements of Christianity that have gone out of their space and actually deformed the message of Christianity in the process that is actually having an effect on people, causing them to deconstruct and leave. Now, we always know that there are going to be people in different responses to the gospel. Jesus says this very clearly with the parable of the, the sower. However, if we're shooting ourselves in the foot in some respect that that some of this is unnecessary. Now God is sovereign and he's going to work that out. But as far as we are able, we are to, in essence, live at peace, to do what God has for us, to show ourselves approved unto God and to guard the testimony, the integrity and the purity of the gospel. And this is, I think what you're doing, you're poking, you're taking a mirror to the evangelical culture saying, this is what I see of the cultural idolatries that you have grabbed a hold of and you don't even realize. And, and so one of the things that you brought out, though, is domesticity. And I went, okay, this, I, I, actually, you're like last four chapters. Every time I'm like, what? Where? Okay. I'm on a, I felt like I was at Disney World going, what animals am I going to see now on this journey? Okay. What this one? There's the, where's the domestic one? What is this? And you call out family. And I went, oh, no. Where are we going? Where are you taking us in this in this part of your book? I don't want you to give it all away. I feel bad for asking all these questions. I just want to know. You need to buy the book, everybody. You're not giving everything here. Well, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, I what I what I target in that chapter is the domestic ideal that emerged in the Victorian age. Surprise, surprise. Um, which not didn't just. Um, I mean, it, the the nuclear family is divine it's natural it's biological there's really no changing it you know we have many deviations from it because we live in a fallen world but it is of god's design but that doesn't mean that we should idolize it right we should protect it we should nurture it but we also must take the whole counsel of scripture and recognize that that there are people who are called to ministry like paul um who pursued his ministry at in singlehood, there are people who are like the eunuch who was not going to have a family. There are widows. There are, there are all kinds of, of people who are part of the family of God who have a role and a purpose. And so to idolize the family and to idolize women in particular, which I point to a very um, influential poem called um, The Angel of the House that presented a woman the woman of the house as an angel, which is an image that does much harm to women and to men and to the entire family and to culture. And to just, again, say this is an excess. Like, we t like it is a vice to take something good and 
make it and, and treat it in an excessive way. And so the Victorian age did this with, with, with family to the point that at the same time that the Victorian age really valued family and built homes and, and, uh, you know, the architecture was built around uh, the, 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 um, the value of the family and, and, and the, the family hearth became almost a replacement for church because the father would lead the worship there, which again is a good thing, but it, it can't replace church. And so the underside, the dark underside of that is that the prostitution rate in Victorian England was like off the charts. So again, it goes back to like that sentimental art that we talked about of Kincaid, where it's all shiny on, on the sur- so shiny on the surface that the underside reflects it in, you know, in, in proportionate order. So too, um, did we see in the Victorian age that at the same time that women were being idolized and family was being idolized, that prostitution was rampant because it's just, I just, I just start. Yeah. If you just start at one end, it's going to come out at the other end, like a, like a balloon. (laughs) So you mean, so are you trying to say there, I mean, and make sure I'm getting this right. You're showing that they idealize and idolize what a family life should look like, like an image of family. And, and sometimes people do that within itself. I remember being in pastoral meetings where it, everyone would say, well, we can't be there for church. We need to spend time with family. Again, this is a reaction to the eighties where it was like, I'm going to work, I'm going to work all the time and neglect church. And then we saw, okay, now the family's got to have it. Well, then that went so far as then the church would have no beneficiary whatsoever. Cause again, the pendulum swings back and forth, back and forth, but it's the I imagery of what a family should be. And again, that, that sensitivity to status that got out of control that really formulated this idea. And I, and I remember talking to some women of a, the generation ahead of me where their idea was June Cleaver. You know, I've got this idea of the dress on and full makeup and I'm cleaning the floor and, you know, hi honey. And even you look at some of the ads from that period of time, I mean, they're degrading as you mm-hmm. look at them, but you're trying to even take them back further and say, wait a minute, there was a period of time in history and you can look back into the Greco-Roman world, you can see it in the Jewish world where the women were working right alongside the men because part of it is they're making, I mean, the the, the idea of, I mean, even cooking was an all day event, <laughs> right, um, right. but you get like Ruth and Naomi or you have, you know, Ruth is out in the field and she's gleaning the, the stra- so, and even Proverbs. The Proverbs 31. Well, yeah, she, Proverbs, yeah, I mean, she's she got is. a whole side hustle. I mean, yeah, she's got exactly. a job. Yeah. And, and, and this is where I think we've, we, as you said, we've encapsulated this ideal that was born in a moment of time and then idealized that for the here and now when really, and that's actually formed how we see the scripture right. itself right. rather than seeing the scripture. Cause when people say, Oh, we, that, you know, we got to be biblical. Okay. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. We want to be biblical, but what do you mean by that? Right. And this is why we need the lens of what was going on in the context in the culture to see really what was, was going on at that time. And I appreciated how you brought that out. It was a challenge. It was a challenge. I recommend people to re- to read that through and and critically look at it and challenge because there's some things you said. I went, oh, okay. I, I my, my wife and I have to have a conversation. Um, <laughs> you know, part of it. But then you transition into this idea of empire, which I, this was the part as you moved into this, as you 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 cite this idea of empire mindset of building almost like a Christian empire. And this is challenging many of the ideologies we see today, even the Christian nationalism idea. Well, they would, they would not like the idea of empire per se, but they would dominion. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, you've even seen that. Tom Holland has drawn attention to that with his book, Dominion. Mm-hmm. And in the Christian manifesto or the, you know, the Christian um, nationalist manifesto that has been now kind of distributed and gaining some ground popularized by Douglas Wilson and others, there is this idea that we are to take dominion mm-hmm. over the world today. And what has happened, though, is it's created more of a subculture of cultural, I mean, I don't want to say superiority, ideology, but this idea of empire. So bring this out for us. I'm not explaining it very well, but bring that out so we can understand. So this chapter is different from the others in the sense that all of the others are, um, you know, they're, they're, they're centered on, on ideas or concepts that are, that are essentially good, but can be distorted. And I think empire is, is one that really is more negative in the way that it's, that it's played out. And so Again, to go back to the Victorian age, the Victorian age was a time in which um, England said, you know, the sun never set on the British Empire. Um, and it did. And so, but so the, the thing that I bring out in there is how the evangelical movement, which arose alongside the British Empire, um, the one that people thought would the sun would never set on, is also, you know, we can't separate what the growth of evangelicalism and the missions um, efforts that it um, promoted, how, we can't separate that from the growth of empire. Um, and so at a time when the British Empire covered one quarter of the globe and, and uh, missions was being done, the spread of the gospel was being done in the name of the gospel, but also in the name of empire. I mean, that's just a historical fact that we can't ignore. And so I'm just trying to tease out and say, well, let's just look at this history and look at and see how has this, how has this, this pairing influenced us today? I mean, and and I I talk very literally about empire and and center that chapter on the very popular poem by Rudyard Kipling called The White Man's Burden, which just basically articulates that it's actually the burden and the responsibility of white people to go colonize other nations. That, that's an underlying assumption. We might say that we don't believe that anymore, uh, or we might not put it in the words or the, just use the words that he uses in that, that poem, but it's still part of our history, and it's not even ancient history. I mean, this is not much more than a century ago. So this is still very deep, deeply rooted. And I just try to show how, well, we might not do that anymore, but um, we still, you know, we have something called the evangelical industrial complex, which is about building empires, whether it's mega churches or publishing empires. We're, we're very much in, in evangelicalism about empire building. And I would, you know, I would, I would, uh, argue that it's really just a semantic thing to say that you know the empire building is somehow different from dominion i mean they are they are different but i think it's all it stems from the same kind of thinking it's gonna be all right yeah yeah how can you tell yeah yeah i feel it in my heart yeah yeah it's gonna be okay there were some really genuine believers that really did want to see the propagation of the Christian faith, but 
found them, found that, and again, this is where we get the mixed bag. It's never, nothing is ever perfect in what we go about and everything has consequences and we're never going to be able to figure everything out. But we should stop and think about some of the cultural assumptions that are there that have shaped us in the modern time because they have shaped largely what the Christian faith looks like. And, and as it's been said, or some have actually uh, hypothesized, if Jesus were to come into our modern evangelical churches, would he recognize it? And I think that's a legitimate question. I think that's something that should cause us all to stop and reflect and go, okay, what does that mean? I mean, and as Dale Moody said, even God can make a straight line with a crooked stick. We we can do things imperfectly. And Paul says, I know in part and prophesy in part. And and he also says, you know, I, I even if it's been a mixed motive for how the gospel was preached, at least it was preached. And some people say, well, then the end justifies the means. But we're also saying, well, yeah, but there are times and opportunities that we need to go back and check the means because that carries meaning and long-term repercussions for the people that we interact with day in, day out. And that's why I wanted to... Yeah, I just want to throw in there. I mean, I didn't say... It's just basic humility, right? We know know theologically, you know, we, we, we insist, you know, we are fallen, we are finite, we are human, we are depraved, all, all of those things. And so if we accept all those things, then, then basic humility says, you know, we're going to accept that we're doing things wrongly and uh, those errors are going to change, you know, throughout time and situation and people. And so like, we just look at them and say, oh, how are we getting this wrong? It's as simple, simple and as hard as that, I guess. Well, but this one gets much more complex. And you, you hit this, actually, you hit my, my guy, Dale Moody. Uh, oh, <laughs> it was a hard one. You're not the first person to, to, to say that, but you basically said Moody in some ways is the father of bringing in modern business methods into evangelicalism. And then you, you trace him down a little bit, hit Billy Graham even. And I know people are saying, well, how dare you criticize Billy Graham? You know, I mean, we're looking at the methodologies that have been employed in the dissemination of the gospel. And we're asking, were there unrecognized consequences for the methodologies that have been employed? That's what we're talking about. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, that's I it. mean, I grew up, you know, just thinking Billy Graham was the God, you know, like like everything was gospel and and he was, you know, Practically perfect in every way. Uh, and so for me, I'm just saying, huh, you know, I didn't, oh, I didn't realize that Billy Graham said this in this context or had this particular influence on this rhetoric in the, in, you know, in, in world politics. So it's just me discovering like, oh, there's, there's a context for this. What is the context and, and what maybe is, you know, is not rooted in the gospel and what is uh, what, what can we learn from that? I mean, that, that's just, um, that, that's what my, my attempt is here is to just take the things that I sort of naively accepted as, as perfect and, um, and completely representative of, of Christianity and evangelicalism and say, oh, wait, there was this. And I'm sure people will do that for me someday, you know, for yes. this time. So, yeah. And, and we have that luxury of not, I mean, of course, we're, we're looking back on history to people that can't defend themselves and talk about it. And, and it's also part of the time that we're in. There are certain things that we, we all look back and we go, well, you don't understand the time. You know, at the time, it seemed right. And, and it was the dissemination of the gospel. Many people heard it. And what we're trying to say, for those that are just kind of jumping in and a little bit confused and what we're talking about, is employing business tactics and business mindsets or that have been used to communicate the gospel that actually ends up treating people as a product rather than a person. Would you, would you say that or would you add to that? Would you disagree yeah, with that? No, no, absolutely. Or even something more um, innocuous and nuanced is just saying that, for example, dressing a certain way is Christian 
when no dressing a certain way is actually just like a business business attire like and don't confuse the two like like if you if you if you're setting up an environment where you want a certain dress code or certain behaviors or whatever say that this is why you have these rules or these behaviors that this this is the reason for them and don't conflate them with the gospel or with the christian faith because that's what causes people to deconstruct is when they discover that this rule, this principle, which might be very good for some other reason, is just, but it's not the gospel itself, or the, the gospel itself, or even a biblical rule, like like wearing a tie, wearing a tie is not biblical, but it might be, you know, part of a culture. So, I mean, I come from an environment where some of those rules were put in place and I saw people confusing that like to say that they are more Christian like you should wear your hair a certain way or not wear facial hair or now you have to wear facial hair it has nothing to do with Christianity it just has to do with culture that's where I have a friend of mine he's with Jesus now but he was a worship leader and he was in a conservative Mennonite background in church and he was also a nurse and he was wearing a suit and tie for some reason and he said, I, I'm running late to the Wednesday service where I'm leading worship. And I run up to the, the podium and I grab the hymnal and I tell everybody to open it. And they're staring at me wide-eyed. And he goes, it's because I'm wearing a tie. And in that cultural, in that especially context, that was considered to be ostentatious. And, and see, that's where people get confused when we codify certain cultural elements that are meant to be a means of paying homage to or respect. But when we codify that in a moment of cultural time and make that gospel itself, it actually delineates or denigrates the gospel itself and confuses people what you're talking about. And I saw it in, I was in India with a man, uh, a Ugandan, and it was his first time ever traveling. And while we, we got there and his luggage was lost. And so he had been on a, he'd been wearing a, a shirt, a dress shirt and slacks and, but everything was in his luggage. So he was, it, it took a couple days to get there to him, poor guy, but we're in this, auditorium for this conference about 1600 people and the the man who runs the ministry who founded it invited him up on the platform and he would not come because he didn't have his suit jacket even though no one on the platform was wearing that jacket it's because he equated those two things together And he's a dear brother in the lord i mean just dear dear brother but these are the things that we're talking about is that when we uncritically adopt methods and we can even get one to a little bit more of a contemporary not in the legalism sphere but Bill Hybels in the 80s, when it was now, he was responding to the the uber formality of the church where people put on the accoutrements of suits and ties and they didn't feel like they could be themselves or let their hair down because he's ministering in an environment where they were wearing $10,000 suits all the time. And suddenly he says, come as you are. You know, this, this is the reaction because people say, well, I want to dress up. I get it. I understand. You want to show respect to God. But again, the pendulum swings the other way in our desire to reach people where they're at. And then people codify that. And then we have to go back. I, like I, I had a, I remember in a service where I had a young man, I wanted him to read scripture and he showed up in his gym attire wearing a Batman t-shirt. And I went, okay, now we've gone a little far. Like you knew better. You don't just, I, I believe it coming as you are, but there is a moment of respect. Even in that culture, we know what a disrespect is. Just if you were at a wedding and a, and the the let's say that the the mother of the groom were wearing a white dress. Well, that means something. A kind of cultural it's been violated. So these are the rules of culture that we've seen that, and that's what we're talking about. Right. How do right. we get the distinguishing gospel? culture from the Christian faith? Right. If, and, and the hard part is, is I remember talking to Craig Ott at Ted Trinity 
I remember being in a class with him and I said, I want naked Christianity. That's what I want. Give me naked Christianity. And he said, there is no such thing. And that it always comes into cultural garb. It's just, can we dress him in that cultural garb and let him be in that cultural garb? And I think that's the, 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 the difficulty. But you also bring out um, something you're also very, very familiar with. When you start addressing the institution you've been a part of, the Falwell Empire and the evangelical elect, of which that's obviously been in the news. Why did you, what did you want to hope to accomplish by bringing that out? And I know some people are already tensing up as they're hearing us talk about this, but it needs to be talked about. It really does. Yeah. I mean, you know, so, yeah, so my, my connection and my relationship to all that is complicated in the sense that I, um, I taught at Liberty University for 22 years. Um, I flourished there. I loved it there. Um, good, bad, all. And then, you know, in my last couple of years there that, you know, the, the, the Falwells were in the news, there were scandalous headlines and so forth. Um, but even, even beyond that, I mean, this is, you know, also been in the news, but not so much is that they're, there have been um, students and people there over the years who have uh, who have who have experienced um, harm um, that the school has not really taken responsibility for or taken as much responsibility for as they could and should. And I mean, this is going to be true of any institution, right? I mean, I'm an I, I'm a person who believes in institutions because I believe that you know to together we can do more essentially uh, and that we need one another and that I, that, that, that I, I think lone wolves can do more harm than than institutions can ultimately but at the same time um, we have to be just as honest about the harm that institutions can do as well and so I think you know kind of the the conclusion I draw in that part is that um, uh, is that you know institutions can do a lot of good and i just i just don't know how much good it takes to sort of outweigh the harm you know that's a kind of a kind of algebra i don't know that only god can figure out but i do lament when institutions are held as more important than souls even just individual souls. And, you know, there are individual souls in my own life and my own individual soul that has been harmed by huge institutions. And I think we're in a moment where I'm asking these institutions that I have been part of and am part of to do right. And whether they will or not is up to them, but I'm still asking the question. I'm still asking. Well, this this is a conversation that Michael Kruger and I had, we were talking about how people will protect the institution at the cost of truth. And there is a part where that they want to preserve the institution because they believe in preserving the institution. They're protecting the gospel message when the reality is, is they're actually scarring it in a way. They, they, they are marring it by, by not practicing some type of transparency and willing to admit it. And, and we got into the conversation about what happened at CT. And now CT came out and admitted it. They, they even published the third party results without even knowing it. That meant a lot because it said, we're willing to have put ourselves on the table to hold ourselves accountable. But many institutions will not. They're afraid of the donors. They're afraid of what the donors are going to say. I mean, I myself, I, I have donors and I, 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 I'd be lying if I didn't think about them when I 
when I do teach because I'm attached. My well-being is is attached. So if we can't admit the complexity as you already did and alluded to, I think that we're doing ourselves a disservice and we're not being honest. Uh, however, I go back to what Abraham Lincoln said. I must stand with a man when he's right, stand with him while he's right, and part with him when he's wrong. And I think that we have our ultimate allegiances to the truth itself, knowing that God will justify himself, but there is a price to pay, and that means suffering. It might mean public ridicule and something that even you have faced. We, we talked about this a little bit in the, the beginning. So you've made the decision to, to leave the SBC or the Southern Baptist Convention, um, something that is is a bit of a difficult thing at the same time. I mean, for you, and, and you kind of alluded to that because there are so many people that you do love and hold dear and have been involved in those institutions and students. But yeah, you decided to leave. What was the the impetus behind that? And that and how hard was that for you to do? Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's something I you know I haven't shared um, the details of that, and I'm not really ready to now. But I will. I can say that. You know, I, I've certainly watched up close a lot of people being harmed, which again, it's, it, you know, we're all going to harm one another and it, it, it is in some ways almost inevitable. And the, but the real test isn't um, whether or not we harm one another. The real test is what we do in response to recognizing that harm or being informed of that harm. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I have to humbly admit that I've seen uh, that harm being done to other people uh, and thought that I could, you know, maybe make a difference. And it just became clear to me that at, 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 at a certain point that I couldn't uh, or I would have to choose between sort of being comfortable but being silent. Um, and I just I didn't choose comfort. Mm. I mean, not to get into the details surrounding it, but there has been a price you've had to pay. I mean, what, have the, what is the pushback that you have seen or has, I mean, it's been in the public eye at least. Yeah. And that's why I bring it up. You, you had mentioned it publicly. Not, you don't have to get right. into the details yeah. behind it. But at the same time, there has been a, uh, a response. What's the response that you have seen as you've decided to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think the response overall has been pretty positive. I mean, there are, you know, as you've already mentioned, there are people that I love and relationships that I have that, you know, have been um, wounded and that, that that's a, a form of harm. I think most of the public and private response has been supportive, but ultimately the in, in, in the end, I'm 58 years old. I've, uh, you know, I'm in a, you know, in a job market that is, <laughs> not looking for um, 58 year old people, you know, to, to take up a, a teaching career. I'm, I'm in a community and a family situation where it's um, difficult for me to uproot. So I'm basically facing probably unemployment, um, early retirement, whatever that might be, uh, which is not what I was looking for. I wanted to kind of ride out the end of my, <laughs> my, my teaching years and uh, you know, in security and high style and teaching students no it's okay it's okay and i'm sorry i didn't mean to, to poke yeah. and prod yeah. on there I, I know how hard it is though to pay the price for truth and to take a stand for something that you believe in in the depth of your being and i know that you've done that and it's hard because people don't know both of the sides of the story that we see and we have to just be aware um, and, and I know that, and know God meets us. Yeah. And that's the hardest part though, because that doesn't pay the bills. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it just well, doesn't, it yeah. doesn't. 
I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm not, you know, God will, you know, God will provide. We live a simple life and, and it, it'll be fine. But I just, you know, I just, I love the institution. I love the people. I love the students. And yeah. I, well, it's those relationships. That's what makes the institution. That's the hard part. When you feel like the institution has taken away the people that you love in some respect, because you can no longer live under it. Basically um, having a soul fracture. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. really what it is. It, it, you're experiencing almost a soul fracture because on one level, you see that the the wrong done in an institution. And, I, and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So forgive me if I am, because again, I don't want you to be forced to do the details. But I know the separation that occurs between the people that you love that are a part of that institution, but may not have allegiance to it. And yet they're still a part of it. And that's mm-hmm. the hard part, saying goodbye mm-hmm. to those relationships and, and dealing with a great deal of misunderstanding for those think that you're forsaking them or mm-hmm. that, that. And it's really you have to be honest with with what God is showing you mm-hmm. in the middle of all yeah. that. So yeah. d- d- not to go too deep, but, but taking that, oh, by the way, let's transition here for a moment. You actually brought out one of my favorite songs, Johnny Cash, <laughs> singing Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> my Empire of Dirt. Yeah. At the end of the day, that's what it is. I mean, right, here's this right. guy that is at, well, at the top of his game. I mean, and I remember it wasn't too long after that. I, or was it filmed in the, the Johnny Cash, like, museum? Yeah, the the video part, the video I think was filmed yeah. filmed largely there. It's a beautiful video, and the song is wonderful. The video is very powerful and moving, and yeah, I mean I, that's how I kind of close out that ch- chapter on empire. Is like if it if if it's an empire of man, it's an empire of dirt, and you can have it all. Well, this this is why, and we've we've hit this hard on the show is kingdom above all before brand or before church. I remember reading Jeff Christofferson who wrote a book called the kingdom matrix. And in the book, he, he basically said, where are the churches of Sardis and Thyatira and Pergamum? They're no longer around because their purpose was to serve as a means for the expansion of the kingdom of God. And they serve their purpose. They're not an end result. They're not a dead sea. you know? And I think that's what we have to keep in mind. It's a kingdom mentality, not our own brand. Right. to to hold on to not yeah. our own institutions our institutions will fail they right. just will right. everyone will i mean for crying out loud we can go back and just see it in the corporate world and mm-hmm. i i saw this in marvel but when they had a miss marvel and she lands in a blockbuster and my kids are like what's that that was an empire in some ways at one time a video empire and then it <laughs> closes these these vestiges of our culture that everyone seemed to thought was insurmountable and then they go by the wayside yeah. And that's what Johnny Cash brings out in the song. Mm-hmm. And I, I know Russell Moore would be happy that we're talking about <laughs> Johnny Cash because he loves Johnny Cash. But is there opportunity for reformation? And, and especially, and, and you conclude that last chapter with rapture, with this idea that we're just, we're going to be with Jesus. We're going to let the whole world go to hell. <laughs> and with, that's why we can't be engaged in the world in a right way. And you're, and you're saying, no, 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 we need to rethink these, these presumptions mm-hmm that there is opportunity of reformation, but we have to tweak our mindset mm-hmm. and how we go about this. Is that what you were trying to accomplish in these kind of, and again, I don't want you to, yeah. people need to buy the book. I don't want to <laughs> yeah. get away yeah. and give it too much away from the book. Yeah. But no, those last two chapters kind of go together um, very closely. And I actually really did a lot of debating about which should, which should be the last one and which should be the, the next to last one. But um, I mean, cause I, you know, I'm, I'm a Protestant 
through and through, as well as an evangelical. So give me the Protestant Reformation. I, I love it. I mean, it, it just brought about, um, uh, you know, so much that I, that is anchors my faith and that, you know, the centrality of God's word and the importance of doctrine and theology. And, and so that was so important, but what I, you know, what I, I kind of, the way that I approach that in the book is to say the, you know, the, the Reformation was, it was, it changed the world. It's a, it's a world defining moment. Uh, and I'm asking, are we at a new, are we at a point where we recognize the need for, you know, a new or another Reformation, not to throw away the old one because it was so important. But I, I think if, if the first Rush Reformation was about orthodoxy, um, orthodox doct- doctrine, I think what we need now is one about orthopraxy. Like, I just think we haven't been living the way that we have said the doctrine teaches us to live. And, you know, I'm a slow processor. I think human being, the human race is a slow processor. And maybe, you know, we do, you know, the Reformation brought us that centrality of God's word and his authority and and the importance of us being able to read it and understand it for ourselves. Um, And now we have to live it out. And so that's, that's, that's kind kind of um, how I end up getting at the end of the next chapter, the rapture, where I, you know, talk about, you you know, the, the, the fun, (laughs) rapture things from the seventies that I grew up with, but, and all the, that different freaked me out, by the way, you started quoting <laughs> thief in the night and I had flashbacks of sitting at church on a Sunday evening. They're all in white. I'm like, they're going to a gallon canteen. I like, I was so scared. Oh, I was terrified. I watched it in my research for this book. And it was like, wow. It was like, I just saw it yesterday. It was still like, so there in my imagination. Um, but regard, you know, all of those different interpret, I, I just like that stuff makes my eyes glaze over. I really don't care about, um, rapture not rapture whatever uh which all of those 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 things that um we were raised in and scared by growing up but what i really care you know what what no matter how you interpret um rapture it there's no doubt that what it really means is being caught up with christ like like now not just in the future but right now caught so caught up with him um and so caught up in him that everything else falls away, like as an empire of dirt, right? And so that's what it means to be raptured, is to be caught up with Christ completely. And we don't have to wait for that. We can have that now. Mm, mm. You know, as we've, we've talked, we've, we've been on a journey today, going <laughs> through a little bit of your book, using the imagination, showing people how many of these different cultural influences from the from the 19th century, 18th century even, have influenced us in the here and now and actually shaped the the social imaginary in which we inhabit, our ideal of the good life, how we should live our life and go about it. And we need to try to pull that away. I I liken the practice of what we're doing now to my home that I lived in in Chicago. My The first home that I lived in with my wife, it was a church parsonage. It was a bungalow in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And it had this old carpet that was there that served a purpose for a time. But as we peeled it away, we found these beautiful oak floors. that were there. And I feel like that's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. We're peeling away the old carpet that has been developed over time, getting back to the purity of what's underneath it and, and, and shining it up to show that it's, it's there. It's, we're not doubting the veracity of the gospel message. We're not taking it away. We are, we are confessing Christians that believe in the scriptures, believe that Jesus is the Christ that died literally on the cross and was buried and literally rose on the third day. 
we're we're calling for the other items that have been built up around it that have caused people in some respect to create a wrong social imaginary that others see and have been turned off by because they haven't seen the real gospel message. That's what we're trying to call people out and, and show them. I think mm-hmm. that's what we're trying to do and what you're trying to do. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm going to. Um, <laughs> now I love that. I wish I'd thought of that feeling out the old <laughs> orange shag rug to reveal the beautiful oak beneath. That's, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, it is. To. It is. And and, and using the imagination as the instrument to show even how we've created these worlds. Um, And we do, we have these things that we live out of. We, these imageries of what the good life is, what the telos, what is the ultimate end, what we're going for? What's a successful and fruitful life? I mean, we, we see this all the time where if you, if like with me and I've seen this with other parents where they say to their kids or they say to their parents, well, my kid got into so-and-so. I don't know where you but this road is yours to trail. We often end our show with what we call the water bottle for the week. What's this water bottle of truth that we can give people to sip on as they go about their week? Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I'll just, um, you know, repeat kind of the what I said last, which is that um, that it really is about uh, being caught up with Jesus. So just whatever disappointment or suffering that we have in, in, in human beings and in human institutions, because they are going to fail us or whatever we do to disappoint and hurt other people. If, if we will just um, cling to Jesus and, and look to him and look to his example, not only in his divinity, but even in his humanity, because that's what we can relate to more. Um, that is the way. That's that's that is the only way. Well, I this has been a delight. I want to thank you for coming on the show and talking about your book, The Evangelical Imagination, as well. And I would recommend to other people on reading well. Uh, it's a good opportunity. We as evangelicals, we as Christians should read more, should expand our ideas to see the world through different eyes and different lenses. It grows us in so many different ways and it is not a waste of time, but it's actually an active engagement of the imagination for the glory of God. But Karen, thank you for coming on Apollo's Water. Thank you for having me. It was a joy. If you don't want your cultural assumptions and idols challenged, then don't read this book. If you want to live a comfortable life in which you never challenge the status quo and pay for it, then don't read this book. The Evangelical Imagination is a challenging book, that's for sure. Not so much because of the subject matter is hard to understand. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, Karen does an excellent job of exploring and explaining topics that are unfamiliar to many. But what's really challenging is that she's shining a light on some of the problematic parts of the culture that shapes us. Shapes, not just shaped, because it still does. You know... I know so many people that when they see individuals stand up against the secularized media or the liberal media, they're more than willing to get behind them. But I have found that it's not the outside world that's problematic. The outside world is always going to be problematic. I mean, Jesus never really went after the secularized world that much. Instead, he would often turn the mirror around to show it at the people that purported to be from God. And in some ways, that's what Karen's doing. 
And challenging in such ways comes at a tremendous cost. You heard the emotion, the tears, and Karen's voice. She has paid the price for being willing to stand up and challenge. Not the outside world, but the evangelical church itself. To recognize and reckon with our past. It's an important and difficult task. And it has cost her her livelihood. This is a good book and a challenging one. One that I think a great many of us should read, along with her previous book on reading well. The question we all need to be asking ourselves right now is, are we more committed to our cultural imagination or to Jesus? Are we caught up in the trappings of an evangelical subculture, or are we truly caught up with Jesus? They may look very close to the same on the surface, or at least from a casual perspective, but they have a very different reality. I found it interesting that Karen talked about a new reformation. Not a reformation of orthodoxy so much, but of orthopraxy. That we need to behave according to the doctrine that we claim. This is what Russell Moore has been talking about. This is what Michael Hendricks talked about in his understanding of a relational reformation. But doing so is going to mean examining our unexamined perceptions and perspectives. In short, as the philosopher Charles Taylor said, our social imaginaries, how we imagine the world around us. This is a large part of what we do here. We know that not everyone can read and interact with all the things that we talk about on the show. And we know that many of you are leading ministries and churches and just trying to get by. We feel you. We really do. I know what it's like going to the day-to-day -day grind. We hope that what we do helps you to do that better. That's our hope. To minister where God has placed you. To water your faith so that you can then water your world. If this has helped you, then send us a line. Not only would we love the encouragement, but we want to know how to best minister to you. And if you're one of our regular supporters, thank you. If you're not, would you please consider partnering with us? It does cost money to make this ministry go and every bit helps. Simply click the link in your show notes. Thanks so much for coming alongside us as we come alongside you. And be sure to drop us a line on Instagram, Facebook, or watch this on our YouTube channel or many of our other conversations. Or if you would prefer, simply email me at travis at apolloswatered.org. And let us know what you thought of our show and what you'd like to hear more episodes about. I want to thank our Apollo Swatter team for watering the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollo Swatter. Stay watered, everybody.